Uh, we're in John's Gospel. I, I looked to the front page of the bulletin and saw six sinners, and I thought, Mark, I don't know if your sermon really matches that title. I, and then I remember that was last week's uh, title. Then I looked inside, I think it's inside, and good people go to heaven, and that made me feel a lot better, because um, that matches right up with my sermon. Um, So we're in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 18 and then move to, through to verse 29, we'll be considering that section today. So John chapter 5, verse 18, after Christ has healed the man who for 38 years was unable to walk. Uh, They accused him of desecrating the Sabbath. And so, verse 18, we pick up. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Well, let us ask God to bless his word in our midst, preached and read. Our Father, please bless us now. These words are rich. They are theological, indeed uh, the highest theology, and we thank you for that, for we have the Spirit to help us accept these things, and we pray we will have the wisdom as the Word is preached to believe these things, and so have what is true life in our souls, the life that comes from the one who is filled with life himself. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I, I had a feeling I, I preached rather long last Sunday, so I, I was in my office this week and I, I pressed play quickly on the uh, sermon to see, and uh, to my shock and horror, it, it showed 40 minutes. And I, I did beat myself up a little bit over that, because I 
I tend to pride myself on being a 30 to 35 minute preacher and usually when you preach over your usual time it means you haven't prepared well. Uh, that's a, another point for another day to talk about. Uh, but then I thought to myself, well Mark, what did you keep these people from? Did you keep them from works of mercy and piety? Or did you keep them from just indulging themselves all day long after that? And when I figured that a lot of you probably I kept from indulging yourself, I had a lot less guilt. I rejoiced and thought, well done, good and faithful pastor, uh, for giving them an extra five minutes. And you see, that illustrates the issue before us of Jesus and the Sabbath. In uh, ostensibly Reformed circles, uh, you have this idea of the Sabbath that there are these exceptions, these exceptions to what you can do on the Sabbath. So the three exceptions typically are highlighted in catechisms and books of works of necessity, uh, you need to eat, uh, works of piety, doing good things like shoveling the snow if it were to block the sidewalk so that people could walk up and, um, and not fall on their way to church, and then works of mercy if if somebody falls into a ditch, you don't walk by and say, well, you know, it's the Sabbath, I really should just come back tomorrow and see how you're doing. And you have these exception clauses. The problem is, when you have exception clauses and you understand it that way, you kind of miss really what Christ is doing on the Sabbath by giving healing to this man who for 38 years was unable to walk. Jesus was not invoking an exception clause oh, well, I can do this because it's a work of mercy. He was fulfilling the Sabbath. He was giving this man rest who had no rest. He was not only blessing his body, but also his soul by ministering to him when he found him. The point is, you can look at the Sabbath in terms of, oh, well, what am I not allowed to do? Or you can look at the Sabbath as Christ did in terms of what he is allowed to do. You can look at it negatively, you can look at it positively, and that actually can reveal a great deal about your life. How do you look at life? Are you looking at life, well, I can't do this, that, and the other, or are you looking at life, this is what I am able to do? And the Christian ethic seems to me to be just as much about what we can do as it is about the things we shouldn't do. And Jesus is bringing rest to a man. He is fulfilling the Sabbath. And so, in verse 18, that's the context. The Jews are seeking to kill him because in their mind he was breaking the Sabbath. Now, they had some very, let's just say, insane laws regarding the Sabbath at this point in their history. Uh, one such law would be that if you had a sore tooth, there was a type of vinegar back then that allegedly... Uh, could bring some pain relief to your sore tooth. So you would put the vinegar in your mouth, swish it around, and hopefully this type of vinegar, whatever it was, would uh, dull the pain and your tooth wouldn't feel so bad. But if it was the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to go and get the bottle of vinegar and pour yourself a nice little glass and swish it around because it was the Sabbath. However, however, if you were anything like me, you would... Uh, at dessert time, 
have your wife say, oh, that's a lot of vinegar you're putting on your ice cream, Mark. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, I feel it brings out the flavor of the ice cream, Barb. Uh, all of this vinegar uh, and the 90% vinegar, 10% ice cream bowl would be there and I would be eating it. And you see what I would be doing? I would be getting around the law because I want my tooth to feel better, but I don't want to break the Sabbath. And that's the problem with man-made laws is there is always a way around them. God's laws, there isn't actually a way around them in a sense. You either fulfill it or you break it. But with man's laws, they're, they're so stupid most of the time that you can find a way around them. Now, Jesus is not breaking any laws. He's not breaking the Sabbath, though they are accusing him of that. But they are accusing him of breaking a law that they have made up in light of the Sabbath. But even more so, Jesus is doing something else. He is calling himself the Son of the Father, and thereby making himself equal with God. If you look at the Old Testament, the emphasis upon uh, saints and believers and God's people referring themselves as those who are sons of the Father is, is quite unique and rare. There are places, Exodus 4 and other places, where there's this idea of God as Father uh, to corporate Israel Israel is my son and so forth. But you don't really see the prophets and uh, others going around saying, God is my Father. So when Jesus does this and makes His relationship to Yahweh, to God, being principally that as a son to a father, the Jews are putting two plus two together and accusing Him of making Himself equal with God. Now, what does Jesus do in response to this? That's the question. And the answer is, he ramps it up. He doesn't say, well, hang on now, let's not get carried away. Uh, you know, there's a sense in which we're all his offspring and we can say this. No, he actually says, actually, yes. I am making myself equal with God. And I'm going to explain to you now just how extensive this really is, my equality with God. He doesn't shy away from it. In fact, he begins to speak of the richest theology Possible. So you will see in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees His Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now then, Jesus is saying to these Jews who are trying to kill Him and saying you are breaking the Sabbath, He is saying to them, first, if you are accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, you are accusing God of breaking the Sabbath. Anything that you accuse me of in terms of wrongdoing in my ministry is actually a deicide. You know what a deicide is? It is the killing of God. It is an attack upon God. That is what the old writers used to call sins against God, a deicide. Man killing man is a homicide. This is a deicide. If you attack Christ, you attack the Father. Because Christ only does what the Father does. Now that's quite remarkable because Jesus will have to later say, I only do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Now, He doesn't just stop there. He also highlights how unique 
this relationship is. And remember, if you go back to chapter 1, we are told at the very beginning, this should not be surprising, for in the beginning he was with God, he was pros, towards God, he was um, face to face with God for all eternity. So here in verse 20, we are told, for the Father loves the Son. And what does it mean to love someone? In this context, it means to show him all that he himself is doing. That's true love. True love, when it reaches its deepest recess, is one whereby there are no secrets. There's nothing hidden. A lot of concepts of marriage and relationships and all these things, and uh, you see these young people and they say they are in love. Uh, in high school, several of my friends claimed they were in love. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had to do our best to uh, minister to our friends and uh, not laugh our heads off. But um, why would you laugh at someone who is young and says, I'm in love with this person? Because as you start to grow older and go through the travails of life and you spend more than five minutes in marriage, you realize that true love is something that blossoms and grows the more that we open ourselves up to one another and remove the secrets and are able to share everything and anything with that person whom we love. That's true love. If your marriage is one of hiddenness and secrecy and not wanting to show and share and tell anything to your spouse, well, that may raise questions about the nature and depths of the love that is in that marriage. Jesus is saying something very important about love. It is not hidden. The Father loves the Son. He shows everything to the Son. He doesn't hide from the Son. He shows Him everything. And so, what does Christ say? Greater works. I healed this man who for 38 years could not walk. Greater works than these will He show him so that you may marvel. Do you want to know that the Father is with me? I'm going to show you greater works than what you've already seen. You want to criticize me for this? You are criticizing the Father, but you're going to have to criticize the Father for everything that the Father does through the Son. And that is why when Jesus was put to death, it was in effect people killing God. Not just because He was truly God, but because He was also the one who was doing precisely the works of the Father. Now another four, there are four different fours here to illustrate Christ in terms of His identity with God. The next one in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, this is the prerogative of God alone, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus is making Himself equal with God and we should kill Him is what they are saying. And what does Jesus say? Oh, me calling my Father my Father isn't just a nice term of endearment. Me calling God my Father is to say that if the Father has power over life and death, so does the Son. And so the Son gives life to whom He will. In fact, everything that now proceeds from the mouth of Christ, speaking of resurrection life, is the crux of Christianity. Everything about why you are sitting here this morning rests upon whether what Christ says in these words is true. 
And if they are not true, you should leave right now. I should leave right now. That's the issue. The Son gives life. If you think my Sabbath breaking is an issue, wait and tell you, wait until I tell you about the fact that I give life to people, that I give resurrection life to people. Now, why is this so important? Because as Christians, we really believe that everything hinges upon the resurrection. Now, I know it's not Easter coming up, it's Christmas, but just indulge me for a moment. Everything hinges upon this, because up until this point in history, the idea of a bodily resurrection is something that is unique to Christianity, to God's people. The Jewish people believed in it, the Pharisees did certainly, but what Jesus does is He centralizes everything about the resurrection in terms of Himself. And if you go to ancient Greek mythology, there is nowhere, anywhere, this idea of a bodily resurrection. They simply believe that there was an afterlife, an underworld, where disembodied souls would go. And there was this place we could know very little about, but they speculated about it. I was reading to my children last night, uh, not reading, telling them the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. That's an ancient Greek tale. And uh, you see what happened with Orpheus. What was he known for? Uh, his music, right? The Orpheum. Now, Orpheus is going to marry Eurydice. Anyone getting married in uh, faith church, uh, this is a salient lesson. They're getting married outside in uh, the wild nature. And what happens? Well, before they're about to get married, Eurydice gets bitten by a snake and dies. So let's keep the weddings indoors uh, for the next six months, shall we? And uh, you see Orpheus is in love with Eurydice. Eurydice dies, so Orpheus goes to the underworld. And as he goes to the underworld with his beautiful music, it's as though he stuns into silence the underworld. And as he gets closer and closer to the place where he is going, he asks that Eurydice could come back to earth with him because he loved her so much. And he's granted the request on one condition. What must he not do? As he's going back up to the world in which he came from, he must not look back. If he looks back, he will lose Eurydice forever. And he gets closer and closer and closer, and he's just about to get to the world in which he came from, and what does he do? He turns back, and Eurydice is lost forever. And the point of that story is to tell you something very important. The dead don't return. They don't come back from the dead. There's no evidence of it anywhere. It cannot happen. And here comes Jesus of Nazareth, and He is basically hinging His whole ministry on the fact that He is going to be killed and be raised from the dead. So anything he says is based upon this belief. He's going to vindicate everything that he's done. So does he have the right to heal that man on the Sabbath? Absolutely. Does he have the right to call God his Father? Absolutely. Does he have the right to do anything? Absolutely. As long as he can fulfill his claim that he will be raised from the dead. And this was... Uh, the obvious crux upon which Christianity was able to flower into what is today 
worldwide religion. Because in the ancient world with the Jewish people, the Messiah was supposed to come and do what? He was supposed to come and overthrow the Roman rule of Jewish people, set them free and defeat the Roman Empire. That is what they were looking for. And Simon Bar-Giora in AD 70 came along. There was a mini-revolt against the Romans and what happened? They put him to death. He died. Now, do you think his followers thought, well, we're going to keep on pressing forward in light of the fact that he tried his best as the Messiah? No, he was a failed Messiah. He died. So then they would go and look for his brother as possibly the real Messiah. But nobody ever went to a dead Messiah and says, well, we're going to keep on pressing forward in your name. No, because the whole point of the Messiah was to defeat, not lose. So what explains the roles of the apostles in Acts? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, it goes completely against Jewish belief and expectation. If you are a dead Messiah, you are no Messiah at all. But if you are a Messiah who has been raised from the dead, then perhaps you are someone that we should preach in His name and die in His name and be persecuted in His name. And when you realize that Jesus has been raised from the dead, everything about what He says here, as well as everything else in the rest of the Scriptures, begins to make sense. But once you take that away, nothing makes sense. So that's why resurrection is so central to Christ's narrative here now on what gives Him the authority to say these things. Look at verse 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear Me will live. He's pushing forward to resurrection life. And right before that, it's quite remarkable because we all know Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But before you get to Romans 8.1, you have verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, but has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When you believe as a Christian, you have eternal life. There are three basic stages to resurrection life in Christianity. I tried to explain this as well to my children. I think they got it, so I assume that you all can. That when we first believe there's a sense in which we have been raised from the dead. We have received resurrection life. Then when you die, your soul goes to be with the Lord. But that's not really the central focus of Christianity. The central focus of Christianity is not life after death. The central focus of Christianity is life after life after death. It's when Christ returns and what do we read? That the dead will come out of the tombs. Verse 28. And they will hear His voice. They will come out and they will receive, if they are Christ's people, resurrection life. That's really what we are aiming at here. 
I'm quite thankful, by the way, that when I die, my soul will go to be with the Lord. But I'm even more thankful, and this is theologically correct, to say that one day my soul and my body will be reunited and I will have resurrection life, bodily life. That's Christianity. People in the world, all over the world, who aren't Christians believe there's a nice place after you die. You go free-floating spirit, smiling down on people. There's an afterlife. People often ask me, do you believe in life after death? And this is the answer. No, I believe in life after life after death. I believe in resurrection life, bodily life, because Christ has been raised. And that's what he's driving at here. Not just a better place, but a whole new reality of body, soul. Now notice what he says. That not only does he have the authority, verse 27, to execute judgment, but he has the authority in verse 26 to give life to people because he has life in himself. So why is it that Jesus was raised from the dead? And the answer is very simple. He has life in himself. So when you keep on reading in John's Gospel, chapter 10, he says, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to raise it up again. Nobody takes my life from me. Was Jesus put to death? On the one hand, yes. On the other hand, He laid down His life. And He raised it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Now, as the dead people come out of the tombs, there is a certain description of those who will have resurrection life and those who will have judgment look at verse 29 those who have done good to resurrection life and those who have done evil to resurrection judgment ah now we are in a bit of a predicament aren't we what is that predicament my friends this is the predicament some of you read too much social media theology Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I said earlier, and I won't rob you of what I said to uh, our friends earlier, I says, I hate social media theology. Snippet theology. Little claim of this theology. If you're Augustine, Luther, or maybe even Thomas Watson, go ahead. But they're dead. What's the problem? Well, here's the problem. On the one hand, on the one hand, there could be nothing more pernicious and injurious to the gospel than to say the following good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. On the one hand. Why? Because clearly we understand there is none who is righteous, no, not one. That salvation is a free gift that comes from Jesus Christ, that He alone was able to merit what we could not because of our fallenness and wickedness and all of the sin that makes us who we are, we could not ever be good people in and of ourselves. So, yes, it is a lie. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. But on the other hand, that seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying here. I mean, should we just skip over that verse and say, wow, I don't know what it means, but I'm going to stick to what I always believed. Good theology is always on a knife edge. And it all depends on what you mean by something. And so Jesus is actually giving us a clue to what He means. 
How do we know He is the Son of the Father? Because everything that He says and does will be vindicated. He is a true and faithful Son because of what He says and what He does and ultimately by the very fact that God will raise Him from the dead because He is a true Son. And your sonship and your salvation will be evidenced by the very fact that you have received resurrection life, not just as some abstract truth that you get to say is true about yourself, but it utterly changes everything about who you are. So that Paul will say, as a way in which you are to conceive of Christian ethics, if you have been what? Raised with Christ, then set your mind on things above. If you've been raised with Christ, you're not going to live as your former ways. If you've been raised with Christ, you're not going to be one who is a slave of wickedness, but you will be a slave of righteousness. And John will say, we are righteous as He is righteous. It is the evidence of what we have received that will be on display when Jesus will bring some who have done good. Do you see that there? They've done good. to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Are you a good person? You, sitting here today, are you a good person? What does Paul say to the Romans? I am convinced, Romans chapter 15, I think it's verse 14, I am convinced that you are full of what? Goodness. The fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. Those who have done good. Those who have done good. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, you even have some hints here. Those who honor the Son, verse 23. That's the sign of life in verse 21. Those who honor the Son. Those who do good are those who live their lives honoring the Son. Not themselves. They are those whose whole life is shaped by the fact that since they've received resurrection life and it has been given to them by Christ, that they're going to honor Him in the way they live, in the way they think, in the way they act. Do you honor the Son? Because He who honors the Son honors the Father. Now what does this mean for us as we close? Well, It really means that everything that Christ is saying here has to shape then definitively your identity in this world. There's that book uh, by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. Anybody read it recently? Ah, Slipping, aren't you? Well, I haven't either. (laughs) But... In Mere Christianity, it's a, it's a fabulous book in many respects, and obviously it's a, it's, it speaks for itself. It does miss something. It misses the resurrection. So you can go home and read it now, and you'll see that it misses the resurrection, which is actually Mere Christianity. But in Mere Christianity, uh, you have that quote, and I'm sure most of you know this quote, but it It should hit home a little more powerfully in light of everything that Christ has said here because if there are any passages whereby you could see Lewis drawing from, it has to be John chapter 5. 
a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that you have no choice but to either accept His claims that He alone can give you life, that He alone is the resurrection and the life, that He alone is worth honoring with your life, or you should ignore Him completely. And just as Jesus says to each and every one of you, anyone who honors the Son honors the Father, so if you honor the Son, one day He is going to honor you. One day He is going to come back and call you from your grave. And He is going to present you before this world with a resurrection body and they will all marvel. That is what he tells them. You will marvel at greater things than these and nothing will cause more marvel in this wicked world. Do you, do you not feel a little bit like this place is so bad, how am I going to get through this life? And frustrated over the last few years especially and what is going on and you go, what can I do? Maybe I can just flip out and start screaming at people. That's what I want to do. I just want to go onto Facebook someday and go nuts about stuff. You know that? Just tell people. What were we thinking? And this and that. And what are people going nuts? And did you see this? And you see these articles and people send this stuff to me and I go, look at this now. Clothing lines in Canada using uh, suicide-assisted death to sell their clothes. And you, you just want to freak out. And I can go on with story after story as you well know. Or I can say, I'm going to leave this all to God to vindicate His people one day. That I will do His will. I will seek His glory and His honor and I will let the chips fall where they may in this life. And it may be a life that gets worse. It may be a life that gets better. I don't know. But what I do know is one day Christ is going to call me out of, his gr out of my grave and He is going to give me a body that is glorious like His body. And the world is going to marvel at those whom He has called to resurrection life when they go away to everlasting judgment. And that ultimately can relieve a great deal of your anxiety about this world that you are living in right now. That one day Christ will vindicate His name among His people forever and ever. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we will
have a holy calmness about living for your glory, knowing that one day we will be honored, if not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. And just as Christ was ridiculed and mocked and shamed for being a faithful servant of the Father, we ask that we would not forget that we are linked to our Savior by a link that cannot be broken. And so as we suffer with Him, we will also reign with Him. And so please bless us with the belief in that life that is true life indeed. For His sake we pray. Amen.